Colloquium, Episode 7, Psychological Damage, Terry Moore on Rachel Rising. Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of Colloquium. My name is Marcuson, and this is my Comics Creator Interview Podcast for Sequart. Last week, I had the honor of speaking with legendary creator Terry Moore. For over 20 years, Terry has been writing, drawing, and self-publishing some of the best comic books on the stands. After completing a 14-year run on the Eisner Award-winning series Strangers in Paradise, Terry tackled science fiction with Echo, a 30-issue story that won him a Harvey Award. Currently, Terry is writing and drawing the beautifully dark horror series Rachel Rising. Since its first issue, the book has been universally acclaimed, consistently receiving near-perfect reviews for its unique mix of creeping terror, humor, and great character work. Terry and I talked in-depth about Rachel Rising. We discussed what makes horror work, how he developed the nefarious town of Manson, and the unique characters who live there, having his heart broken over Supergirl, the obstacles he has to overcome as a self-publisher and why he decided to create a series with a lead character who starts off dead. Hello. Hello. Hey, Terry. This is Marcuson. Hey. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. A little cold, actually, here in Chicago. You don't sound cold. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually in my uh, second bedroom, and uh, the heat doesn't seem to get here very well. So, But this is where I do all my recordings. I got a studio... Um, it's actually the front bedroom of the house and it faces north windows and it's always the coldest room in the house because the sun's never on it down here. Uh So, you know, so I'm freezing, but I'm freezing in 50 degree weather. I'm not used to yours. (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll suffer together. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk about Rachel Rising. I love the book. Yeah, good, good. Uh, well, I'm going to try not to spoil anything in the book because I really want new readers to give it a try and uh, be surprised. Yeah. Um, but for people who haven't read any of the issues, how would you uh, describe the series to them? Well, I, I, I used to describe the series as, uh, you know, a girl wakes up in a shallow grave in the woods, digs out, and goes to look for her killer. Um, so that was my explanation for the first year that I was making this story. But as you can tell by reading the story, it's actually grown into much more. So I guess... So much more. Yeah. You know, that doesn't really do it a just service anymore. So it's really hard for me to say without getting out spoilers. I think what I've tried to do is a mix of uh, my favorite horror stories. So it's Twin Peaks meets Hannibal Lecter meets Strangers in Paradise. Mm-hmm. That's the best I can do at this point. So if you're familiar with those stories, imagine that. You know, I was trying to get a creepy little town 
with uh, some very interesting main characters who are navigating just weird, bizarre occurrences in their life. And um, I'm always interested in that kind of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, the one thing I can say is that it's not really um, contemporary zombie slasher core. It's not that. Um, it's more of a Hitchcock Twin Peaks feel to it in terms of just the goal is to creep you out. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it's interesting because the book isn't really like any of the classic horror stories we typically get. I mean, most horror stories are about, I guess, a monster and how many bodies that monster can pile up. But with Rachel Rising, you kind of turned it around and made the book more about um, a victim who comes back to take down her killer. Well, yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you kind of look at my work, that's sort of my theme in my work, um, victims rising to um, face their their attacker or their protagonist or whatever the problem is. Uh, you know, whether it's Kachu facing her past or Julie Martin facing atomic science that's being mishandled by, um, you know, the macho world of men in science and men in military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's, you know, Rachel uh, facing the demons of death and evil. Um, that, that present themselves in various with various faces in the story. So um, you know, it's it's not unexpected. It's it's a horror story, but it's coming through my filters. You know, it's done my way. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you consciously steered away from the typical horror story tropes. It's just the story that you wanted to tell. Uh, yeah, and it, you know, and when you think about it, uh, I would say ninety eight percent of everything we all write is a trope. I mean, we can trace it everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I've had, I've managed, so what I hope for is to, to manage to come up with a few original scenes once in a while um, where there might be a visual I've never seen on TV or in a movie. And if I get something like that, I'm ecstatic. I'm just delighted. Um, so I hope for that, you know. But in terms of handling and dealing with, um, tropes and genre writing, you know, you have to enjoy it for what it is. You know, even as a writer, you have to enjoy the fact that, say, you're writing a detective story and your detective decides to um, watch somebody for the afternoon. They walk across the street, get a hamburger and a beer, and come back, sit in the car and watch a little bit, and then a character, a neighborhood character walks up. Well, that's a trope. (laughs) You expect that. That's what gives you a sense of place of your character, you know? I mean, that, that's in every single detective book I've ever read. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to enjoy it. So what I do is I have my character drive my kind of car, eat my kind of lunch, eat my kind of street character. And, um, you know, you try to look at it through fresh eyes. Right. It's the twists that you give it. It's the twists. It's like watching the Olympics, all these uh, teenagers in the Olympics. They're so young. They're so young. And they're... They're having the exact same experience as every other young Olympian I've seen for the last six Olympics, and they all say the exact same thing. It's the exact same experience again and again, but with somebody else's kids. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what you do with stories. You know, you you're writing about the things that we all do, and you try to have a new angle on it. You know, right. Well, I heard that uh, Rachel Rising was born out of your run on DC's Birds of Prey. What's the story behind that? Yeah, that's, a, that's true. Um, 
I was working on Birds of Prey and thinking about characters that I would bring into the series, and I wanted to introduce a new villain for the Batman family to deal with. And the idea was to have this girl who was uh, sort of dead in the sense that they would find her, Rob, say, committing a crime at one night on a Monday night, and they deal with her, and she accidentally is, dies in the confrontation. They send her to the morgue, and they're all sad. Mm-hmm. Tuesday night, she's back on the street again, you know, and it's like, what? <laughs> and it happens again and again and again, and this is the shtick. You know, it's the dead girl. And I actually used the word dead girl as my character name uh, in describing this character to the DC editors and all that. Uh, but unfortunately, before I could get my character done, uh, Mike Allred had created a character. Oh yeah, X Force. Yes. Uh, so I kind of I took the wind out of that cell. So I had to. I knew I was going to have to come up with another proper name. But uh, my run on the Birds of Prey was short, and I so I went home with my character. And um, when I finished Echo, I thought maybe now's a good time to work on this one. Mm-hmm. So that's how she came about. I mean, you did a few work for higher projects after Strangers in Paradise, and then you went back. And what was that experience like? Did you feel the itch to go back to your creator-owned stuff? Well, I, I set it up as a something I would do between my own books. Um, when I ended Strangers in Paradise, I was not ready to launch whatever next I might publish. I wanted a break from that routine, so I... Um, the last year of Standards in Paradise, I was campaigning heavily with the DC people, virtually begging them. I made a fool of myself begging. Really? For Supergirl. I said, mm-hmm. please give me Supergirl. Just let me take on that series and I will I will fix her. You know, she, she needs to be, if you only have four characters on a poster, a DC poster, she should be one of them. She should be one of your big four because she has too much power to be a sidekick and you guys are treating her like a cheerleader and blah, blah, blah. And she's got this funky little series that never goes anywhere. She, she's not grounded. She doesn't have an apartment or a life or friends. I don't know anything about her personally. She has no quirks or ex- eccentricities or kinks. So anyway, I was going to fix all that. I wanted to do that. So, But they never were interested. And um, That's surprising. I was, I was devastated. I mean, it was like, you know, chasing uh, a crush and be, finally being turned down. Um, so anyway, Stranger in Paradise ended, and about a month later, I'm just sitting there. So I called up Joe Casada one morning, and I said, hey, Joe, I'm looking for something to do because I want to take a year off from my stuff. Um, do you have anything for me to do? And he said, let me check. I'll call you back. And he called back that afternoon and offered me Runaways and Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane, uh, both of which were, um, you know, about to lose their writers. And uh, so I said yes. So I thought I would just do it in the nine to ten month period between my series, but it turned out that um, the the work on the Marvel series took a little longer, and I actually had to start Echo while I was still working on Marvel. So I was actually writing and drawing Echo and writing two Marvel books at the same time for about hmm. um, uh, a year. It was really a tough time, but, man, it was a blast. Why did the Marvel work take longer than you expected? Waiting for the other books to, um, the the current runs to complete and me getting up and running on them and then me starting to work on them. And I was about halfway through the work when they started coming out. Mm 
and I was scheduled for nine to twelve issues on each one. So it just kind of you know the way it all flip flops. Publishing, you do things so far ahead of when it actually comes out. It just there's always a stagger to it, and uh, you know it's like working on an album and or a movie, and then people don't actually hear it or see it till the next year. Mm-hmm. Now, would you still write Supergirl if you had the opportunity? No, I think that ship has sailed. I really and truly because uh, you had your heart broken, and now you're over it. <laughs> uh, I'm sort of over it because uh, when I was trying to get in there, it was when I knew people at DC, and it was the Paul Levitz DC. And now DC is a, a giant, giant company um, in Hollywood, and I don't know anybody there. I know Jim Lee and Dan DiDio, but that's it, and Shelley Bond. I know three people at DC. And uh, and then there's just thousands of workers, and it's just a huge factory, and the characters are – it would be like trying to work on Mickey Mouse now. I mean, the, the character's so huge, you can't do anything. You'd be handcuffed, yeah. You really have to be in the system now to carefully handle it, because I think now the characters are being very tightly um, iconic, controlled as icons, and, and uh, there's a lot more money at stake now that they're becoming more iconic and – things like that. So right. it's not the same same as it was back in the 90s and 2000s when, uh, you know, your friends were editors and you say, hey, they'd say, hey, you want to run on this? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's kind of going back to the way it used to be back in the 50s and 60s where they were big companies and we didn't know anybody there. and um, The books just appear, you know. Right. And, and I suspect that back in the day, Supergirl wasn't as popular. You probably could have done a lot more with that character. Um, and now they're looking at it as properties for all different kinds of media. Yeah, I think now if I thought I was going to a meeting about Supergirl with DC people, there would be some business people in the room from the upper, higher up in the umbrella, and they would say, "No, we have to. We have a future plan for this character, and it needs to fit our future." You know, so you're trying. You, you know, you're, it's a much bigger picture. Um, I think gone are the days when, you know, you could just, everybody could have a little fun turn at something. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you got back to the creator own work because we got Rachel rising out of it. So uh-huh. back to that, you know, the first thing that really struck me about that book is that Rachel starts off dead. I mean, that's not how most main characters are introduced. Why did you, <laughs> why did you decide to start the book off by killing your protagonist? I, you know, I've always wanted to start a song or a movie or a comic with an explosion. Just get it out of the way, you know. <laughs> uh, so that was my way of, uh, you know, as you get more and more into writing, you get, it's like doing a uh, something physical. The more you do it, the more you start trying to play around with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought, by, that, by the point, by the time it was time to write Retrovising number one, I was thinking, you know, I got an idea. How about the character dies on the first page? Just get over with him. And now what do you do? You know, and it's more interesting that way than starting off. I was born poor child back in Mississippi, you know. Um, so it, it's, it was something fun to do. Um, write your way out of it. Throw everything. Throw it, you know, you get all your ideas, you, then you throw them against a wall, and you try mm-hmm. to make something out of the mess, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that makes Rachel Rising so disturbing to me is the way that you portray violence in the series. 
um, the repercussions of violent acts seem real. It's not like in a film where people can sustain massive amounts of damage and punishment. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide to take that route in all your series, really? Yeah, that's your... I'm glad you see that um, because that kind of is the point of it where um, I think my basic writing style is to uh, get to a scene a little early and leave it a little late. Um, and the reason I do that is because sometimes there's um, you, you get a little more connection with the character if you see them, um, you see more of a reality about the character. You see how things affect them, how they are anxious about a, about a moment coming up. And then when the moment's over, if you would linger for a minute, you would hear some very personal things. And then that draws you in closer to the character story, actually. It's like being somebody's best friend, sitting with them before the doctor comes in, then the bad news, and then the doctor leaves. Well, most people cut when the doctor comes in and goes out. But you, the best friend... You saw what they went through beforehand, and you hear what the friend says when the doctor leaves, and you see their real reaction. So I try to write on that level so that you're their best friend and you see this stuff, um, how it affects them. When it comes to violence, um, I've just always thought, well, that's crazy that somebody can keep getting kicked in the head and they keep getting up. Uh, because I saw a couple of guys beat up in high school, and... It didn't take much to put them in a hospital, and their personalities changed and everything. They were never the same person. Um, I had one friend who was very outgoing and really all together, and then one of the bad kids in school beat the living shit out of him, and um, a lot of kids stood around and watched. And he was out for a week, and when he came back, he didn't talk to anybody for the next three years. I mean, really, really, you know, damaged a human being. It's something you don't see a lot of is the psychological damage afterwards. Exactly. But, you know, we as people, as human beings who read the news, have families and friends, and we cope with life, you know, we see that. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, in our entertainment, the entertainment skips across the high points. But, for instance, women, I'll tell you a good example of what I don't like to do is in the... Um, Serenity movie, mm-hmm. the Firefly movie, at the very end when the captain is keeps getting beat up and beat up and beat up in that last fight scene. Right. You know, there was t- way too much damage on the captain. He got like 30 blows to the head. And <laughs> That's true. I thought, there's just, no, I'm, I'm out. I, and that guy's a skilled assassin, too. You know, he's probably going to strike him in a place where he's not going to get up. That's not going to happen, guys. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just, I... I you know, so when I do my comic, um, I'm trying to write from a point of compassion in terms of like, okay, I'll show you what Hannibal Lecter did, but then I want to show you the consequences of one human being doing this to another one. I mean, it's not like you just get to shoot the rabbit and walk away. Um, you know, there's there's a reason why we all instinctively uh, draw away from this behavior, and here's the reason. So it's kind of like my anti-war protest or my anti-violence protest. You know, it's um, it's it's my way of protesting violence to give you a little taste of what it really looks like, and then spend a, an equal amount of time on people trying to patch those holes back up. Right. 
Well, another thing that seems realistic to me is the way that you present the dead medically in Rachel Rising. So I was wondering if um, you did any medical research to talk about bodies or the conditions of people who have been in, in accidents. Um, not for this particular series, but I've been very interested in anatomy and the human body since I got serious about art, which was right after high school. Hmm. During high school, everything I did was cartooning and copying. And in my young 20s, I got really interested in uh, the great American illustrators. And so those guys, of course, were classically trained. And when they drew a woman, it looked like a woman instead of, you know, um, a cartoon character. And so I wanted to know how to do that. And I realized that just copying them was not the answer. I needed to know what they knew. Um, you know, James Montgomery Flagg didn't get good by copying uh, Howard Chandler Christie. Um, he got good by studying anatomy and, and knowing what in the world he was drawing. And so when I, you study anatomy, sooner or later you go back to the guys of the uh, Renaissance who were cutting bodies up to figure out what was inside because there were no anatomy books. And um, so I learned from da Vinci's grotesque habits uh, about what was inside and how it works. And um, hmm. I, I thought when I was in the middle of doing that, I mean, this, this is a multi-year thing, you know, teaching yourself. But somewhere along the way, I realized this is exactly what doctors do. I mean, a doc you, you want a doctor to know your body inside out. You wouldn't let him touch you if he didn't know what was under there. And uh, that's kind of, I think that should be the responsibility of a good artist. Um, you have no business drawing a person if you have no idea what's under the skin. You know, it's just never going to work. And um, so I began to realize how serious doctors take their training. And if I want to be a professional artist, I should take my training just as serious. So I got really serious about learning the body because that was my forte and all I was interested in drawing. That's a really cool connection. I didn't even think about that. Not being an artist, it probably wouldn't sink in. Yeah, you know, you would assume that your doctor can look at you and know what you look like under your clothes and what's going on with your body shape and all that. And I think an artist, a good artist should be able to do the same thing. Well, Rachel Rising is your first horror series. Is horror a genre you grew up enjoying? Uh, yeah, I, I did. Um it's a, a spotty um, history. I mean, it's not something that I obsessed about or defined with, but I loved the all the horror movies you discover as a kid. Mm -hmm. I thought some good stuff was made in the 80s. And What's your favorite movie from the 80s? Um, I, I really liked um, Reanimator. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's an 80s movie, but um, I really I liked the Reanimator, and I thought the first okay, – I'm actually getting older here. I thought the first 15 minutes of The Exorcist was the best 15 minutes on film I've ever seen, um, where they just discover something in the East the doctor doesn't um, – the priest does. Where they, they make the discovery and uncover this old evil, and, and the whole area just becomes eerie and wrong, and dogs are barking, and people are scowling, and this, you know, he's unleashed evil, and that's the coolest thing. And, and they actually 
was so much better than going back to Boston to a townhouse and a little girl. Um, but the first 15 minutes, I thought it was so cool because it was making a huge statement. It made this huge statement of this stuff's real and it's bigger than any person. And you've unleashed something that people 4,000 years ago wrote about, you know, because it changed the world. Now you're dead. Now you're touched it again. You know, that's so much bigger than a little girl uh, cussing in bed. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that movie still creeps me out. I recently watched um, Alien, and I forgot that that was such a great horror movie because you think of it now as an action movie, but that first movie was really, really intense and um, atmospheric. The, I love the first one. Uh, it's so much better than the others because it was um you know the thing okay i'll tell you a trick okay the thing about terror is it's all in the mind um so when you get an atmospheric movie that works that's going to be more scary than stuff coming at the screen in action um and i'll give you just a, a really domestic example um i was a i was a very nervous flyer until one day I took a flight and I white knuckled it all the way through because it was turbulent. And the, there was a business traveler next to me and he read the paper the whole way through. <laughs> he was, I was, I was, I was in one hour of terror and he had an hour of rest. And we were on the exact same trip, having the exact same experience. The difference was all mental. And the minute I realized that, I have never had a problem again. And um, when it came time to writing about terror, um, I realized that the what I needed to do was hit you um, mentally. Um, there's nothing I can do visually that'll scare you, but if I can draw you into a story and get your mind thinking, and then take your mind to a dark corner, um, then you know that's the best I can do. Mm -hmm. Well, it totally ties into what you were saying before, where you know you knew a kid that got beat up but it was really the psychological effects of that incident that affected him more than the actual beating. Yes, exactly. His physical body recovered. His mentally, he did not. Right. Well, hopefully now he has. So, yeah. And, you know, um, maybe most people my age have been in an emergency room at least once. And one time I was in an emergency room, and I didn't think I was going to leave. And... Uh, when I was laying there, you know, you know, you have a little time between somebody coming in the room. Um, I did not once think of all the stuff I had done. All I thought about was relationships and mental stuff, uh, you know, the moments in my life that I had uh, processed mentally or enjoyed. Um, so what I thought about was stuff that had impacted my mind, not things I had done. I didn't think, oh, gee, I went to Hawaii. So glad I stood on Diamond Head. You don't think things like that. You think about who you love and uh, maybe a regret or something. So it's all, you know, life is mental. It really is. And the rest of it is very animalistic. And you can write about the animal stuff we do. But the impacts are mental. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we seem to be in a bit of a renaissance for horror because we have this success of The Walking Dead. And we've got zombies in general. And, of course, vampires are everywhere. What do you think of the, the current interest in horror tales? I think it's a, I think it's a little grandchild of the um, 
goth period and the dark night period and all that. And you got a new generation coming up and they want their own version of everything. So, um, they take all these old, um, styles and, um, you know, try to make it their own, but there's always been something dark going on. Um, even in the giddy days of the seventies, we at least had the eerie comics and creepy comics and swamp thing and all that. But, um, you know, it's, uh, entertainment took a, you know, our comic entertainment took a dark turn when Frank Miller started doing his stories and everybody started emulating him. And, it, you know, nobody's, it's just now starting to wear out and wear off. And, uh, between Frank and Neil Gaiman's um, gothy work, um, you know, it's kind of, I think we've, we're kind of in the third generation of all that. Mm-hmm. In terms of, um, the zombie thing, though, I mean, that really, I didn't see that coming. That didn't rise up out of comics, really. Um, the Robert Kirkman uh, re- bringing back Walking Dead as his own um, story, um, that was just, that just came out of him. I mean, he decided to do that, and um, it just was the right thing at the right time, you know. So it's pretty cool that he did that. At first I was thinking, hey, that's not going to work. I mean, that story's been done, you know, five times. But he found, you know, again, he's working with a, um, a tropes and he's working with a, a very strict genre, even to the point where it's a genre under a specific title. Uh, we all know exactly how that story works, and he makes it fresh. So, you know, that's that's good back to what we were talking about a minute ago about writing um, familiar material in a new way. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, back to Rachel Rising, one of the elements of um, horror I wanted to talk to you about is the town of Manson, because you've kind of, you've given it a real sense of place in history. A lot of bad things have happened there. Um, It almost feels like a character, the way you portray it. What went into creating such a creepy place? Mm -hmm. It's so wild. It's kind of gratifying to hear you say that, because the first professional critique I ever got on my work was, you have no sense of place. Really? Yeah. I was turning in comic strips to um, my first batch of comics to an editor. I sent it off to the editor um, who worked on Peanuts. Um, and her reply was, you know, this is this has some things going for it, but you have no sense of place. You know, I don't feel like the characters are grounded anywhere. Hmm. And um, so I guess that criticism stuck with me. <laughs> was it really true? It was true. I mean, I look at it and, you know, they were just, you know, she was right. So ever since then, when I work, I always worked in a neighborhood. Um, There was at least, uh, they were grounded out of a house or a neighborhood street with, you know, something. So when it comes to uh, Manson, I knew that it was going to be specifically based in a small town like Twin Peaks and, uh, you know, that, that that could be part of the problem. Um, I think if you've ever taken a car trip into states you don't live, um, you may have pulled into a gas station where you got the feeling you don't belong there. Yeah. So I wanted the whole town of Manson to have that feeling, you know. It definitely does. Yeah. Good, good. I'm very pleased to hear that. I mean, it really helps with the atmosphere like we were talking about with Alien or other horror movies because you don't know what's happened in the beginning to this town all these years, you just get glimpses of it. And um, I really like that sense of foreboding. Well, um, I grew up in the South and 
my parents came from small towns, and when we'd go visit um, the relatives who lived in that small town, you know, you'd sit around the dinner table and listen to all their stories about the locals, and they were nut jobs. <laughs> so I, I kind of grew up thinking that's how small towns work, you know, that it's full of characters, and um, because these people don't get out much, <laughs> they, <laughs> they tend to, you know, their eccentricities are not curbed, and they tend to be a little more um, eccentric, and, uh, you know. But people are eccentric anyway. It's just that when you say you live in New York and you're commuting every day and have to deal with Starbucks lines and getting on and off subways without getting beaten up, you know, you curb your behavior. But in a small town, you know, it, you can walk around with your butt out, I guess, and, and <laughs> it may say something on Monday, but by Wednesday, nobody's going to say anything. So right. there you go, down Main Street in your truck with your butt out. So. <laughs> there goes butt crack Bobby. There goes butt crack Bob. That's just what he does. So <laughs> beauty of small town life. As long as butt crack Bob will be there if we need him, if somebody's house catches on fire, then he's accepted, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk a bit about uh, the characters in Rachel Rising. Um, all of them seem so uh, distinct and realistic to me, and I know a lot of characters you create are based on people you've known. Can you talk about uh, the main characters in Rachel Rising and um, where or who the ideas for them came from? I don't know. I think that if I were to actually really try to scientifically address, say, where Rachel came from, um, it would be a long, boring essay on citing a lot of different women that have made different impressions on me in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, they really are just uh, reflections that came through a prism in my head. Um, I'm, I may take 20 different impressions, and it comes out as one character trait in a character. Um, for a character like Rachel... Um, where you want her to, you know, she needs to be a combination of the attractive girl next door that you could actually talk to who is approachable versus um, maybe a, um, a young woman who is brave and strong and, you know, actually in the, about to do something that requires a lot of courage, like, say, a half-pipe uh, skier, you know. I just watched that last night. Exactly. I mean, how brave are those those girls, right? Mm-hmm. That was amazing. Those girls they have a lot of balls. <laughs> <laughs> no, especially when you get a certain uh, camera angle and you realize how steep and how big that half pipe is. And it's just, you know, it's it's not like coming down a bunny slope. So, you know, I mean, it's a combination. I mean, Rachel is a combination of the kind of girl that could, you know, when she needs the bravery of a half pipe skier, you know, it's there or... If you just meet her, you know, at, at the street corner, you can talk to her as if a neighbor, she was a neighbor, you know. I mean, so I think about these things when I need them, when the moment comes up and I'm thinking, okay, what is she like now? Is she approachable or which trait is coming out? And um, in terms of, like, making one character different from another, you just end up thinking, okay, well, this one would never do that. That one would always do that. And just becomes a menagerie in your head, like a playwright or a director, and you're thinking, you know, you just kind of orchestrate this little imaginary world. Next thing you know, you've you've got, um, you know, you've got a, ca- a cast of characters. Mm-hmm. Well, what about Jet, the uh, mechanic by day, bassist by night? 
Uh, I like her a lot. Um, there was there were a few girls I knew in high school that were like Jet. Um, they they were cute. They liked boys, um, but they always wore jeans and a t-shirt, and they they would go to the smoking area behind school with all the other guys, you know. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't make them blush. Um, that kind of girl, a little bit tomboyish, but cute. And I mean, they knew how to do a 360 in a car. You know what I mean? A yeah. Switchback. Um, so there, I always knew a couple of girls like that who would end up, you know, growing up to become bartenders or um, military officers or whatever it is they do did. But I always liked them, and um, they were girlfriends of friends of mine. You know, the guys I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I never dated one. But when I, it was time to do characters like um, Kachu or Jet, um, who are not afraid to get dirty um, with life, then, you know, I, and I mean that in an action sense, then, you know, that's who I was thinking of. That's who I was drawing from. If I had gone to, you know, if I'd never met a girl like that, I don't know how I could write a writer, you know, if I'd only known girls who wore dresses and were prudes. Um, <clears throat> how do you write a kachu, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, and I did know, I, I've known girls that play bass and things like that, and they have an edge to them. I mean, there's something different about them. They, they're really cool. And um, when it was time to do Jet, I knew that I wanted Jet to be a bass player. And she's actually, she's actually the same Jet character that was in Strangers in Paradise. Right. It's just her hair's grown out, and she moved back to Manson, and um, ta-da. Here we are. <laughs> and how about uh, Aunt Johnny? That's an interesting character. Same thing. Um, I knew an Aunt Johnny growing up. No, my dad had a friend who worked with him at a radio station, and uh, he was he was very country and western. Uh, this was when we lived in Louisiana and Mississippi, and he worked at a small radio station. So, you know, country characters. And um, his family... It was like they all wore horn rim grass horn rim glasses when they weren't cool, <laughs> and they had a daughter named Johnny, and um, I didn't know it at the time, but Johnny was a dyke. Um, she was about ten years older, and she wore blue jeans and uh, black cowboy boots and cowboy shirts, and really neat person. We were crazy about her, and um, she came to visit us. You know, long after we had moved away, she'd stop by and visit. So I always liked Johnny, and uh, I never understood her until I was 30 <laughs> um, years later. So that's uh, where Aunt Johnny comes from. There. So you have this small town, and the local uh, mortician is um, this you know, 50-year-old lesbian who lives alone and um, has become a little bit eccentric by working with dead bodies every day. And, but she's, you know, she's... She's got some really cool things going for her. Um, she's got a great dog, and she loves classic cars. I mean, how cool is that in a woman? Um, and she has a fantastic library at home. And I love it that she is an atheist who looks at the trouble in the story from a scientific standpoint, and some things just don't add up. So she approaches it like a scientist approaching a great mystery. And then you have a couple of characters in there. One character argues it's all witchcraft. Well, the scientist isn't going to accept that. And then you have another character, Dr. Seaman, arguing that it's, you know, holy stuff, not from, you know, 
not from a church standpoint, but from a, you know, God is scary standpoint. This is all like creation stuff, you know? Yeah, I love that, Aunt Johnny. She doesn't even, it's almost like in the beginning when Rachel first comes back, she doesn't even recognize that she's real. Mm. You know, like uh, it could be a figment of her imagination that it can't be her. Well, and, you know, I've still got some room to play in there. Um, there's it's still not nailed down exactly what she is and why she's here. So, you know, spoilers there. I, mm. um, there's a, we haven't nailed that yet. Nobody's actually figured her out yet. But my goal is to do that. And I have this fantasy in my head that um, she is what she is. And just like Buttcrack Bob, she would find acceptance in town for what she is. And it would be like a madman type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, madman went around and nobody asked him why he wore his mask. Um, so I had that, I had that fantasy when I started the series that you would introduce this dead girl character and eventually she would find a place in town to, you know, be accepted. So I, whether or not I can actually make that work, I don't know. I'll have to write and see. (laughs) Well, we also have to talk about, uh, Zoe, uh, the 10 year old girl who kills a lot of people in the book. Uh, where did that, the idea for a little girl in the story come from? Uh, I probably got the idea from old, when I was 10 and saw an old Twilight Zone with the scary kids from the cornfield or, you know, little building mummies sending people away and that kind of stuff where the kids could be scary because you can't talk to a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. You can't have a logical conversation and say, you know, don't send anybody to the cornfield today. Um, so there's something scary when a kid goes wrong, a little kid. And it's also the last place you would expect. Nobody expects their 10-year-old to walk into the bedroom and kill them while they sleep. So if you, that's your problem, you've got a serious problem. Um, I'm also kind of doing it, again, as a rebellion against the trope of all predators are uh, scary, big, brute men, you know. Mm-hmm. So all, tra- all predators are men. Um, it's true most predators are men, um, and I really hate that fact but in terms of a writer um i was really turned off by the fact that say in thomas harris books or in um dan brown books every time he gets a a villain they went way too far in repeatedly saying he's a monster he's a monster uh Hmm. like in the hannibal uh books and again and again and again and again, Dan, you know, uh, Thomas kept saying, monster, he's a monster, he's a monster. And I thought, you know, let us decide for that. You're telling me what to think. Uh, right. Shut up with it. And you know who else does that is Patricia Cornwell. Uh, if she gets some, you know, when she gets a scary person in there, you know, everybody's reacting the exact same way. Uh, oh, he's a monster. Shut up. <laughs> I never heard somebody say more than once that Richard Speck was a monster because we knew it, you know. Um, so when a writer does that, it's disgusting. So I, when it came time for me to write a monster, I wanted to write somebody that didn't fit the didn't fit the profile. This would be the last person the FBI would look for, and um, so you know, put my Billy Mummy Kid together with uh, rebelling against modern thrillers. And uh, I came up with a 10-year-old serial killer. Yeah. I also, I, I've always had this fantasy, and I think it's kind of a Mike Nichols directing, directing Broadway approach of, let's cast a play, and then everybody pass your script one actor to the right. 
So the the big six foot three scary looking guy who had the serial killer role has passed his script over to the ten year old girl and now she has to play it. And I'll let that big guy play um, a nurse in the hospital. Uh, that kind of thing that really interests me. And if I was going to direct plays, I would definitely do that. I would I would take modern classic plays and then miscast them deliberately and then see because what happens is everything looks fresh coming out of the wrong mouth. It's the same words coming out of the wrong mouth and now you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. You do that with women, I think too, because people have a vision of how women are supposed to act, but the way you portray them, you know, you don't stereotype them. Well, you know what? Um, I'm not sure I've ever written a scene showing a woman doing something that a woman wouldn't actually do. What I do, what you can accuse me of, is I don't complete the profile on any of these women in the sense that I never really show the intensive amount of time that women spend on their relationships in their life, um, which is the most important thing to a woman, is their relationships in life. Um, it's, it's important. It's, it's almost biologically important. I think medical studies have shown that a woman needs connection with people and friends and loved ones um, to feel happy, uh, more so than a guy. You know, a guy is a, can be a little more isolated and not quite have the same wear and tear on his system, you know. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't – I do not faithfully portray that. Um, I don't faithfully portray women – spending a lot of time doing what women do every day, at least the women and every woman I know in my life. Hmm. So uh, what I had done is focus on them in action the same way you would focus on um, the Lady M in the James Bond movies. You know, she has a private life, but we're not looking at it. I, I try to write women that you know they must be doing that. You know that Francine goes and gets her nails done, but I didn't burden you with the sight of it. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> well, uh, what I like and a lot of people like about your stories are the relationships between the characters um, and how they feel real. Um, and like you said before, that's what really matters in life is the relationships that you have. That's what you're going to think of when you're in the hospital, when you're on your deathbed. Mm -hmm. So for Rachel Rising, what, what are the relationships that uh, matter uh, most to you in that book? Well, I think what we're seeing is the ties that bind uh, in terms of friendship and family. Um, in the new issue that just came out, it actually they actually brazenly discuss it for a minute between Jet and Rachel, where um, Rachel points out that um, Aunt Johnny is family to her, even though she's not a part of her original birth parents. You know, um, so the definition of family, you know, is there's more to it than birth parents. And, and, and I think that um, as you go through troubles together and you bond closer, you, you know, it, it's where, when are you a friend and when do you actually become uh, a necessary person in life, like a family member, you know, where, I don't ever want to lose touch with you, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, I'm interested in that in, in terms of I think that that's where we draw our strength from and our help from. Um, nobody's really an island, and when they do become an island, then they live in a shack in the woods and send out scary uh, powder to people. So <laughs> it's not good for man to be alone. 
Um, so, you know, I think it's it's valid to bring it into a horror story that the only way you're going to get through this kind of stuff is uh, with help, you know, right? one way or another. Hmm. Well, let's talk about art a little bit. Um, are you approaching Rachel Rising any differently than your previous books like Echo or Strangers in Paradise, given that it's a horror genre? Yeah, I am. Um, in Strangers in Paradise, um, more and more as I got better as an artist, growing up in public as an artist, um, I tried to focus on the roundness of creation, the roundness of the hum- of the female body, and everything in, in life is round, and there's no straight angles. And when you um, nothing is straight in the world of physics. And we don't know how long anything is. So, um, so I I focused on that kind of uh, feel in my visuals. Then, um, when I got to Echo, um, I had been studying up on the layout and what was it, what is instinctively attractive to the human eye, because I wanted to improve my art. There was too hit too much hit and miss in my art. Sometimes I nailed it, sometimes I didn't, and that's not good for somebody that has to do it every day. And uh, so near the end of it, Strangers in Paradise, I started studying, going back to the drawing board and looking at how those great guys were so reliable with it. And I, I realized, you know, the point of uh, relationships in your art um, in terms of like fee relationships, um, perspectives and all that. Mm-hmm. I even laid out the page to a fee layout, just the same way that Da Vinci laid out his, all of his uh, paintings to a layout so that uh, things were right exactly where they should be when they were a quarter of the way in to the panel or something. Um, I became a lot more conscious of that. I was no longer stabbing in the dark at any of it. And even the page layout reflects that. Well, when I got to Rachel Rising, um, I kept the layout uh, just because it now has become like my signature um, platform for me. You know, I don't see anybody else doing it and I'm happy to keep it and it seems to work mm-hmm. um, in terms of my page layouts. But in terms of the visual for the people, um, I switched to more of a pen. I still use brush, but I use more pen and I do not concentrate on these beautiful um, galactic arcs and recreating these lines and all that. I, I Everything is a lot more uh, frenetic and jagged, um, as if I was 90 years old drawing it. And, I, and what I'm trying for there is to give you a feel of frenetic energy, that these bodies and these limbs are in movement, and almost like a shaky movement. You know, it's just kind of like a, to put your subconsciously ill at ease, you know. Mm-hmm. If I could hide naked bodies in the ice cubes in a scotch class, I would. <laughs> Anything subliminal I, that I can do to get the point across, I absolutely will. You know. Wow. Well, I love the covers as well. Um, I think they set the tone perfectly for the book. It looks to me, I don't know, that you're coloring directly over pencils. Can you talk about how you create the covers? That, that's true. I, I do that. I for Rachel Rising, I'm drawing the covers in pencil. And I really wanted to draw the entire series in pencil, but I decided it would take too long. It would take longer to do all the erasing and clean up and all that. Ah. And I remember um, I didn't even try it, but I 
was told that from, I remember Colleen Duran said that years ago. She drew an entire book in pencil, and then she tweeted, oh, my God, this was a nightmare. This took much longer. Did she do a distant soil that way? I don't remember. I don't think it was distant soil. I think it was another project, uh, but I don't know, remember what it was because this was years ago. Right. And, um, you know, her pencils are beautiful and polished, and I'm sure she did something very polished. Um, but she did a lot of pencil uh, work back in the like the 2000s. She kind of went through a stage there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, w- when it was my turn, I thought, well, I, I know better. I mean, listen to her. Um, she's right. I know better than to try this. So, <laughs> but I wanted to, I, my pencils are so much better than my inks. Um, when I'm drawing at home or something, um, you know, you draw it and then inking it is like, I hate to say it, but it is kind of like drawing it again, tracing it again over it. And, um, you know, you, maybe you kind of miss by a millimeter that one little thing that made the nose cute. <laughs> and something is lost, you know, and those little things add up. And at the end of the uh, work, you maybe you've missed 30 little things that really made the other one have some life to it. So it's uh, dangerous to mess with a good pencil. And um, I decided that I would just keep it that way. I did a couple of Strangers in Paradise drawing covers in pencil, and I loved them uh, the way they turned out. So um, It works perfectly for Rachel Rising, though. Again, you know, frenetic lines, uh, not smooth, uh, and um, I don't know. There's just something a little more earthy about it. I think every time I'm doing inks, I keep thinking of uh, Charles Brown, um, you know, it, it, polish, you know, and I didn't want there to be anything polished about Rachel Rising. It needs to be earthy and organic. Mm-hmm. Well, and the colors help with that, too. Usually just have one or two colors, it seems, on each cover. Yeah, um, and I'm getting that from um, the 40s movies posters for the horror movies posters of Universal and all that, where they tended to use flats and just uh, a limited palette. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw Frankenstein and Dracula uh, one-sheets that were uh, just black and green. Um, so I thought, cool. So I'm actually just you know, uh, giving a tip of the hat to that, uh, something that is classic. Then I started doing the book, and I thought, you know, it'd be really cool. I knew that I was going to do six issues per trade paperback collection, so I thought, what if the next six issues uh, for the second trade, they all had a different color scheme? So every six issues um, has a different color palette, and when you lay them all out on the floor, you can see it. Yeah, you know, I get uh, Rachel Rising digitally. And so when I look at it on the iPad, mm-hmm. you can see all the covers all at once laid out, and I totally noticed that. Kind of fun, huh? It's really neat. <laughs> it's um, I don't know. It's it's kind of like a really base level tadpole idea of something you know uh, Spiegelman would do. <laughs> um, he would. I wish I had his brains for uh, art direction and layout and all that, but even come, trying to think of something to do with covers, so this is just not, you know, uh, a bunch of random drawings, you know. Well, it's different, and it stands out mm-hmm. on the stands, too. Well, exactly. I mean, that's one of my names on top, uh, because it's the only chance a browser will ever see it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see paperback novels, those 5 by 7 books, um, 
that that big author name at the top is there on purpose so that when you somebody's reading it at the pool and they have both hands on holding the book open, um, you can still see the name from across the pool mm-hmm. uh, whose book it is. And um, that's more important to advertise the author than the title if they're doing, you know, three books a year or so. Um, when when you're doing a comic and you know it's going to end up on a spin well not a spinner rack but on the wall shelf, um, all you're going to see is the top third. So there's going to be a lot of yellow and red and uh, purples and stuff like that out there and a lot of Photoshop uh, detail stuff and for me to come out with something that's simply black and green, um, it's my only chance to stand out from a wall of Marvel comics, you know. Right. Well, we talked about The Walking Dead a little bit, um, but recently I also watched the pilot in black and white, and I was struck by how much more sinister it was in that format. And Rachel Rising is in all black and white, and I think it conveys uh, a similar feeling. As an artist who's worked in black and white for 20 years, uh, what do you think about black and white works so well with horror? Um, I think it's subliminal in that you know, you're dealing with extremes of good and evil. So the entire story is black and white, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're just kind of stamping, um, giving that a stamp um, that, okay, here's a story in black and white. And and that's that statement means a lot. Um, the best thing you can do with a horror story is to write great characters. Because we expect, okay, here's going to be the, the victim and the predator and the brave uh, soldier. So if you can then get into the middle of a black and white story and you can't figure out who's black and who's white, you know, who's good, who's bad, um, that that helps a lot to make a story interesting. So I, I think it's valid to have a black and white art and it would also be valid to use gray tones if you wanted to but not too much um i don't use gray tones just because it's time consuming i've used uh, uh, some here and there spots to just help with rendition or dimension when i really needed it but um you know and the thing about color in a horror story um is that too many colorists have um too many colorists are trying to paint a gorgeous world and that's their that's their gift that they can do that. When you get to a horror book, you know, um, flats don't quite work, and you know, um, the best rendering possible of Photoshop stuff doesn't work. It's too much, you know. I, I think it doesn't work until you get into painters like Ashley Wood or Jeffrey Jones, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, tell me Ashley Wood's not scary. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so it, I think in order to get it, you would have to work with a, somebody who's more than a colorist. They're actually just a phenomenal painter. Yeah, it's true. Ashley Wood does have really creepy stuff. Ben Temple Smith also. Yes. I mean, 30 Days a Night was just, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, it was just, you know, awesome. And um, so if I had a chance to work with a painter like that, well, hell yeah. <laughs> Not stupid. Um, the reason I work in black and white is because I have to work quickly and turn it in immediately and uh, to keep a book coming out every six weeks. So I do it so that I can keep putting a book out regularly. But um, if I was retired and going to reissue this um, and had all money to spend, I would 
I would not be opposed to letting a great painter hack away at it and turn it into something amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Rachel Rising uh, has the roots to continue for a really long time. Issue 24 was originally the planned end, but you could easily keep going for years. But it seems like you're in a strange spot because you've expressed frustration on Twitter about sales, um, but the book's also been picked up for TV. So can you talk about your thoughts on all of this and how it affects Rachel Rising, the comic series? It's hard to talk about it without being brutally honest, and I don't know how much honesty people can, you know, the, the public can take where they would, you know, not begin to worry about things I worry about. You know, I don't want to pass my worry on. Um, don't psychologically damage us, Terry. Don't, I can't psychologically damage you. The good news is, is that I feel like I'm doing my best work. And every time, every new issue is harder and harder to do because it has to be the best thing I've ever done because um, I'm so compelled to not be um, become the weakest link. I don't want to drop off the picture. I, I don't want to be missing in the world of comics or fade away. I'm very, very motivated. I really want to be uh, a successful comic book writer, writer artist, and, and have a long career. You don't think you're that now, Terry? Well, I think I think I'm here, mm -hmm. but I'm speaking from the standpoint of how tricky it's been to navigate the last eight years in publishing and in comics. You know, mm -hmm. as publishing has imploded and all that, and everybody's changed partners and. I'm kind of like the last of my breed um, in terms of losing a support group and a uh, group voice of, you know, hey, we are the self-publishers and we dominate a tenth of the market. Well, that's gone. <laughs> and now it's just, you know, Terry and his black and white book and everybody's paying a lot of attention to the big five, as always. Um, so my position in the industry as a whole is a lot like being a mid-list author. Um, it's a tough it's a tough battle to uh, every time you put out a book, you have your readers, of course. I have my readers. Um, but there's actually a publishing system between me and the reader that is a challenge. Is uh, not always a help. Sometimes it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the biggest challenges for me because I don't have advertising or sales force and I don't make phone calls and things like that, the biggest problem is keeping the business systems in support of me um, so that I don't slip between the cracks. And by that, I mean um, the retail system, the distribution system, the trucking, uh, the printers and things like that. You know, um, I'm not their biggest account and there's only so much many books they can carry. You know what I mean? And, the problem is that a retailer would say, oh, yeah, we carry Retro Rising. But what I've found is what that means is they have uh, a pull list, and then they order one for the shelf. And so the pull list come and get their books, and nobody knew it. It didn't help the rest of the customers. Uh, that's, a, that's like having a secret. They're quiet sells. And then the one goes up on the shelf, and it's gone within an hour, and now it's out of sight, out of mind, and nobody – so my issue came and went through that store, and only one person saw it. And um, the situation never grows, you know. It doesn't change. You would think after um, 
if a book is proving to be popular, that what is put on the shelf might grow. And there are some retailers who do that, you know, who who order large amounts and sell large amounts. I have accounts like that. But um, unfortunately, the norm seems to be, you know, pull less plus one. And that's tough to overcome, you know. It's tough to overcome. I was so glad when Comixology began carrying the book because it was a whole new, it was like having a new distributor, a new account. Right. They didn't, they didn't take away any of my print numbers at all. They just added numbers that I needed um, for sales, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Comixology pays quarterly, so I never really know where I stand with them except for four days a year. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. And so this whole thing about uh, when I tweeted, my numbers are continue to drop despite the best reviews I've ever seen a comic get. Um, which was just confounding to me. Um, well, then there was a wonderful rally from my supporters, and I won't know what the, if there was any effect of the rally until um, I get the orders in for the next two or three issues, and uh, I get my next Comicsology quarterly report. You're talking about the hashtag Save Rachel Rising? Mm-hmm, exactly. Because... Um, you know, the reason I ended SIP was it was time, but also because the numbers are just were just going down and down and down. That's what happens when you do a series too long, unless it's X-Men. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I can't boost give the series a boost by bringing in a new writing team and a new artist. So, <laughs> you know, if, if Jeff Johns was on his 400th issue of Squat Man, um, and he, that's, he was stuck on Squat Man for life... Uh, he might find a tough time finding numbers too. So, um, not if it was Butt Crack Bob, that thing would sell forever. You no, know, Butt Crack Bob <laughs> is the key to success right there. I mean, come on, <laughs> who doesn't want to know the story behind that? I've seriously considered getting up on long series altogether and just doing uh, three to four issue mini stories uh, because then you can just keep the excitement of new going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like that's the trend. Mm-hmm. Maybe a two-year series for indie books is probably good, just because you have that first year to build up the buzz, and then people start getting on it, and then you know, interest in it starts waning. Well, that's what I was thinking when I started Rachel Rising, and I thought, okay, well, that would be about issue 24. So mm-hmm. we'll just say that, and I right. I worked for that, and uh, but then in the somewhere in the teens, the book just started getting great reviews, and um, now I'm in a very strange predicament. If you go through and look at the reviews on Rachel Rising, um, they're just over the top. And I don't mean that in a personal way at all because I feel totally disconnected from it. It's it's the book and the characters, and um, it's about the band. It's not about me, the manager. It's about the band. The band is good. So, you know, that's that's going as good as you can get with a book. Why would I stop it and start another one when I can't? The another one couldn't get better reviews than this. So mm-hmm. how would I ever improve? You know my situation in publishing. If I know I cannot, it's not possible for me, Terry Moore, to get better reviews than I'm getting on Rachel Rising. Um, so I don't know what to do. If I'm getting great reviews now, and I'm still struggling with the order numbers then it's something else, and it's probably something 
I'm not good at or I don't know how to do or maybe I'm not working on a story with a broad enough appeal. Maybe I really should. Maybe the really the only thing that really does work is, you know, I would tend to be tempted to say maybe the only thing that works is iconic characters, um, things you can make toys from. But, you know, that's not, I think, you know, when you look at some other books, that hasn't been the case with them. Walking Dead is uh, doesn't fit any Marvel criteria or DC criteria. So no, but it also had the television show that made it take off. So and you're working on that now. He does. I mean, uh, that's true. And and if there was a Rachel Rising TV show, and if it did really well, um, obviously that would change my story. But it would change it because of TV, not because of anything I managed to do in comics. Um, well, I wouldn't say that, though, because you created the story, so it's based off your entire imagination. Well, true, true, but looking at me right now without a TV show, you're looking at the best I can do in terms of like, okay, here's the story, it's well done, and here are my, here's where I am on the charts. So I'm in the same place I was 20 years ago, how do I get past it? And that's my challenge right now as an indie creator and indie publisher. How can I break past my glass ceiling, you know? I mean, I think, unfortunately, I think some of the best models are when you have an indie creator and that person goes over to the big two and does a run that's well-received and gets better name recognition and then goes back to doing the indie stuff. You know, you see a bump based on that. Uh, and it seems like that helps because they get their name out into the, you know, the mainstream. Well, you know, when you're, I, I come face to face to that with that when I go out to cons, um, where I will go to a convention and then people who are into mainstream come up to my table and they'll say, I've heard of this. Um, who are you? What's this about? And now I'm talking to somebody, you know, you know, that's way out of my world and I have to win them over from scratch like it's day one for me. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a unique challenge and, and it's part of your role, your job to, um, you, you know, you have to take, you have to do that. You know, you have to go out there and see that stranger and, and see if your book works for a stranger, you know, things like that. So it's true. It's, um, Marketing and, and getting your work out to uh, people who have not found it yet, that is really the challenge of publishing. And it has to be hard for you because you're doing everything on the book. So most of your time is spent on uh, the creative parts. Well, that's the, that's the problem right there. Um, I'm the author. Um, I sit in the shed in the woods, and the more time I spend in the shed, the better my book gets. Um, what I'm not is a outgoing marketing person who makes a product just so I can start a business, you know. So mm-hmm. um, it, it takes – some people have the whole package, and I think um, in my career there have been times where I tried to do both, and, um, and my book suffered. So now I would rather make good books and um, make – I try to make books that are too good to be ignored, and that's the, really the best effort, my best effort at it. Um, if somebody else is, can figure out a way to market it, then uh, that's going to have to come later, I guess. So I am my, I am my own dead end. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's, uh, how's your experience on the TV show been going? Um, it's, it's been interesting. It's, um, they're very excited about the property. 
and it's in development. Um, and anybody who's been in that position knows that that is a lot of phone calls and a lot of rewrites. Um, but it's still very promising. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a little out of my element, of course. I live in Texas, and I'm not in that business. It's not my forte. So, but I do have one thing that continues to be of, of um, help, which is my ideas, um, which is really what they bought, right? Right. Was my ideas. So I continue to be open to sharing and uh, trying to help them figure out a story that's um, unique enough to be appealing. You know, that's the trick. And you're executive producer on that, right? Um, yes. Yes, actually, actually I am. Well, right now you have a, a Kill Me Zoe contest going on where readers have the chance to be the next victim of a serial killer in Rachel Rising. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the contest and how the idea for that came about? I knew I wanted to offer the contest to let somebody come be a guest face in the book. Uh, I thought it would be fun for somebody to be able to do that. Um, I had done it a couple of times in Strangers in Paradise. So... I thought instead of just having, say, a trivia contest, that maybe I could uh, do something smart and um, make it about getting the the title Rachel Rising more exposure. So the contest is about uh, who can get the most exposure for the name Rachel Rising, whether it just be take a selfie of yourself wearing a T-shirt in a crowd or um, get something online that goes viral. Um, It's just trying to get the name out there. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, the deadline is March 10, and it's, I, people, I've been getting submissions that are really clever. What have you been getting in so far? Uh, I made a Tumblr page. You can go see them at the Tumblr page, uh, which is killmezoe.tumblr.com. Great. All right, well, the last question. Sorry, I have so many. I didn't even realize I have so many questions, Terry. Yeah, this is uh, I'm taking up your whole podcast here. <laughs> well, it usually runs about an hour, actually. I would get in-depth about one particular book that a creator is uh, working on. Uh, but the last question is actually a two-part question. I know that you're a musician, so I was wondering if music had any influence on the creation of Rachel Rising. That's the first part. And then also, what music would you recommend for people who read Rachel Rising? Um, music is uh, something that I love, and I draw a lot of inspiration from it. Uh, I find a lot of parallels to creating uh, uh, a comic book and, and the things that I learned through music. And when I work, a lot of times I will be listening to music nonstop as I work for inspiration. It's, uh, it helps to transport you to the scene you're drawing, you know, to have a little bit of a soundtrack going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot easier to draw something scary listening to uh, the right music than it is to listening to a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so, um, but the music I would recommend, I, I don't know, I would have to, put together a playlist like people used to do. Um, I listen to some soundtrack stuff um, that, you know, just strikes me at the moment. Um, I don't know. I I can't pull anything off the top of my head. I have a wide range. I'll listen to um, anything from death metal to orchestral soundtrack stuff to, um, to soft stuff, you know. So it's not always, you know, banging around. It depends on what I need to be channeling at the moment. Mm-hmm. 
I've been listening to a band called Envy. It's a Japanese. Oh, you have? Yes. Mm-hmm. I like it because it's you know it's got the uh, softer melodic pieces and then it's got the the screaming metal parts. Kind of fits well with Rachel Rising. You know, uh, people think of uh, the Asian uh, musicians as uh, bringing up the rear on every trend, but that's not true at all. I mean the the dedication to their music is outstanding, and I've found some fantastic um, inspiration through some of the musicians in uh, Korea, South Korea, and in Japan. Um, tremendous musicians there, and they make beautiful music. Um, my favorite um, jazz guitarist is from South Korea. I just found him on YouTube. I have no idea what his name is, but I've you know, uh, bookmarked all of his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm curious. I'll I'll send you the link. All right. Thanks, Terry. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about Rachel Rising. Sure. I love the book. You know, I hope it continues for a long time. And I hope uh, we get to talk again in the future. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for reading my books. I really appreciate it. And I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I hope you have fun reading them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Colloquium with Terry Moore. You can find out more about Terry's upcoming projects on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Terry Moore. Visit his website, terrymoreart.com, to order the Rachel Rising trades and to enter his Kill Zoe contest before the March 10 deadline. For more about Colloquium, visit the Sequart Research and Literacy Organization website at sequart.org. Along with the cast, you'll find reviews, documentaries, scholarly articles, and many unique books that discuss and analyze your favorite comic book series and creators. Also, visit martianlit.com to download a free 8-page preview of the brand new comic book series, Martian Comics. It's weird, psychological sci-fi at its very best, brought to you by Sequart founder Julian Darius. Big thank you to John Raffano, who wrote and performed the Colloquium theme song. You can listen to the band's first full-length album, Known Flood, and their all-new EP, Lion's Eye, at sonnet.bandcamp.com. Until next time, chums.